Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... So when you receive the divine grace, what should you do? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Bishop Robert Barron, the Bishop of the Diocese of Winona, Rochester, and the Chairman of the USCCB's Committee on Laity, Marriage, Family Life, and Youth. Bishop Barron, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Delighted to be with you today. Bishop Barron covers a wide variety of topics through his ministry, Word on Fire, and has been serving as our chairman for about, well, let's see, almost six months now. Right. Today, we wanted to sort of dial in on something, a different angle on the call to love, which might not seem to connect initially because of its broad impact on the Christian life, but can offer sort of unique insight, I think. And it has to do with uh, one of your professors from seminary, uh, Monsignor Robert Sokolowski, who wrote and taught extensively about what he called the Christian distinction. What did he mean by the Christian distinction? Well, first, I'm delighted we're talking about uh we call him Sacco in our day. I don't know if he still goes by that. But he was, you know, probably the favorite teacher of most of us. I was a, a Basilian scholar. So it's a scholarship for philosophy, seminary philosophy students. And so I had him, gosh, that's 40 years ago. But he's been teaching there forever. And uh, the book in which he makes that distinction, uh, The God of Faith and Reason, was in sort of preliminary form when I took him. He was teaching from the notes for that book. It's about the function of philosophy and theology. But much of it turned on this distinction, the Christian distinction, he called it. And here's what it is. It's the way that God differs from the world. You know, here you and I are both beings in the world, and everything um, in this office where I am, everything where you are, everything up to the planet Jupiter are all beings within the world. So they're caught in the sort of nexus of conditioned relationality and causality and so on. So when you say, now, alongside of these beings, there's this great being called God. Well, that's the wrong way to think about God. That's not honoring the Christian distinction because it turns God into one being among many. Like another billiard ball kind of bouncing up and colliding with. Like a really big billiard ball. So there's all of us bouncing around and there's this giant, very impressive billiard ball called God. (laughs) And that's, Sokolowski always taught the wrong way to think about God. And in doing that, he's not engaging in some novelty. That's the standard bit of the theistic tradition. I'll give you a good example of it. When Thomas Aquinas says, in his typically sort of laconic way, God is not in any genus, even the genus of being. Extraordinary statement, really. So a genus, some kind of category of existence. So you and I are human beings. We're in that you know genus. Right. The computer in front of me is is a technological type being, et cetera. Well, you say, okay, well, God's not in any of those categories, but heck, wouldn't he be in the category of being? You and I are beings and God's a being, right? He exists, right? So, Right. But Aquinas says, no, he's not even in the genus of being. And he's making this observation that as the creator of all things, God is not ingredient as an object in the world that he creates. So it's it, the better analogy... I don't know if Sokolowski taught this or I got it somewhere else, but would be author to a book is a better analogy because the author is responsible for everything in the book. Think of like Dickens or, or Tolkien and some you know, sweeping novel. Well, yeah, the, Tolkien's responsible for every little thing in that book, every character, every plot line, every subplot, everything, every description comes from him. But okay, no, no, where's which one of those guys is Tolkien? Well, he's not a character in the book. 
there's Gandalf and there's Bilbo and Frodo and there's the orcs and oh there's Tolkien and there well no he's not a, a character in his own novel so in a similar way God is responsible for the whole of existence finite existence and is not himself ingredient in finite existence not one thing among many that's the Christian distinction that's the distinction between God and the world God is other than the world but this is um Catherine Tanner's language but God is otherly other you know so <laughs> you and I you're other than than I we could say the planet Jupiter is other than the two of us but we're sort of the same kind of other right I'm other right. from you in the same way that you're other from me and we're right. just two guys yeah we're other in kind of a conventional sense but when, yeah. and when I say God is other than the world I don't mean it in that way he's otherly other he's his distinctiveness is utterly distinctive it's upon that sort of paradox Sokolowski taught, and I think he's dead right about this, that so much of Christian theology turns. The reason why people often find Christian statements puzzling is they don't get this distinction. If you don't get this distinction, then a lot of things we say, for example, about Jesus, about the Eucharist, about the sacraments, about the church, don't make sense. People mock them, oh, that's silly. But it's because they're operating within a conventional framework. But once you break free of that and you get the distinction, then these things open up in a fresh way. Part of this that really puts my brain in a mixer is the turning attention back to creation and turning attention back to creatures. Because I think if somebody who maybe uh, hailed from like an Eastern religious tradition heard an analogy, which is not the way you're using it, but heard an analogy about the author and the characters, they might say, oh yeah, sure, that makes sense. We're just characters. We're not we're just sort of a manifestation, a limited manifestation of the author, but we don't have real existence. And where, where Sokolowski seems to differ, right, is that the creatures still do have their own real being in spite of this or because of this distinction. Because of it. Right. Because of it. See, because if God were one being among many, then God would be in a competitive relationship with the things that he's made. So yeah. it'd be the big billiard ball that's kind of dominating the smaller billiard balls. But if you say, no, God is otherly other, that means God is not in competition with the world that he's made. He's not kind of jockeying for position among the things he's made. He can utterly let them be because they're not on the same playing field as, as God. God can empower creatures utterly to be precisely because of this peculiar way that he relates to them. I think the initial reaction for some people when they hear something like that is, well, okay, God doesn't need me in any way. Does that mean like I add nothing to the total you know, goodness in existence? Does that mean I don't matter? Well, no, the first part is true, but not the second part of what you said. <laughs> it is true. Remember, it's one of the prefaces we have at Mass. You know, Our praise adds nothing to your greatness. It's a very important move, though, because so much of pagan religion depends upon well, the gods need our praise, and that's why they're so uptight and they're so worried all the time and they're making such demands on us because they need our sacrifice and our praise. But the God that we've been describing, of course, doesn't need the world. God is utterly responsible for the to be of the world. Therefore, what could God possibly gain from the world? So our praise adds nothing to his greatness, but neither is our being. Nothing in us adds a, a bit to God's uh, greatness. Sokolovsky's formula was, after creation, there are more beings, but no more perfection of being. 
See, and that that also depends on this distinction. So you can say prior to creation, well, there weren't all these beings around. That's true. After creation, there are all these beings around, you and me and Jupiter and everything else. There are more beings, but there's no more perfection of being. It's not like we've, oh, now God benefits from and, and God's greater because of the world. Another Sokolowski formula, God plus the world is not greater than God alone. Now, if you understand St. Anselm's famous ontological argument, it hinges upon that intuition. And see, people that misunderstand it from, from Kant on didn't get that, it seems to me. They didn't understand what it hinged upon. When Anselm says God is that than which something greater can be thought, he has to mean he's not a being. Because if he were a being at the top of the chain of the hierarchy of being, well, then God plus the rest of the chain would be greater than God alone, right? Yeah. So if you say, no, God is that than which nothing greater can be thought, then he's not that. <laughs> in, in fact, the world is adding nothing to his greatness. But see, I think all of Christian life practically hinges upon that insight. God does not need me or you. God does not need our praise. God does not need our being in any way. You know, you, you mentioned uh, some pagan religions, and then it reminded me of uh, the movie Clash of the Titans, uh, which is like kind of a, a modern distillation of like Greek mythology. Yeah, and right. it shows out like it shows Zeus at the beginning, and he's very large and shiny and powerful and impressive. And through the course of the movie, people offer sacrifice to Zeus less and less, and they believe in him less and less. And he gets like less shiny and less impressive. Yeah. And he sort yeah. of is powerless to stop it. Sokolowski would say Zeus, so construed, is an object within nature. He's a super object. It's a heightened natural being. But see, when you talk about the supernatural, it's this distinction we're talking about. Again, we don't mean, oh, here's this natural realm kind of in, in the world. And then if I go up, up high, I'm going to find this supernatural. No, the, the supernatural is what is outside of the realm of sort of categorical existence. And as I say, much of our theology depends on understanding that correctly. We talk about supernatural in a lot of contexts as meaning having to do with superpowers or something, which yeah. you know might be preternatural or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's not the way supernatural gets used in the tradition. No, it's God's non-competitive transcendence to the world. That's the Sokolowski distinction, if you want to put it another way, that God is non-competitively transcendent to the world. So in salvation history, how does this Christian distinction get revealed to us? Like, how do we how do we learn about this in the first place? You know, Sokolowski was not the first one to come up with this. No, I mean, I'd be with St. Irenaeus here that the Old Testament is the long period of, of apprenticeship where God has chosen a particular people and he's going to school them in his manner of being. And that to me, that also clears up a lot of problems in reading the Old Testament. You know, we say, how could that be? How could God have done that? Well, the same way that you talk to a child very differently than you talk to an adolescent. And then you talk to him differently than you talk to an adult, right? So that you see a kind of progression within the Old Testament as God is shaping his people to understand who he is. In some parts of the Old Testament, God is clearly presented as a, as a being, you know, who has human form and talks to Moses and all that. Well, we're not meant to take that literally. That's the way you might talk to a child, you know, in a, in a simplistic way about cosmology or something, trying to communicate a truth but you're not you're not getting at the at the thing accurately. Just because you're meeting them where they're at doesn't mean they're going to stay where they're at. Right, exactly, and that's the trouble people have often saying, "Well, the Bible says this here." Well, yeah, I know that's how you talk to a child. But when the child grows up, you might talk about Stephen Hawking, even though when they were a baby, you might say, "You know, the sun is going to sleep at night." 
You know, so the Bible has some of that quality to it, it seems to me. But my point is, what's happening is that the people of Israel is being trained gradually in understanding who God is. One of the breakthroughs, I think, and I've written a lot about it, is the burning bush story. So God speaks out of this bush that's on fire, but not consumed. So as God comes close to creation, he doesn't destroy it. He makes it luminous and and radiant and beautiful. And that's the non-competitiveness on display in a kind of vivid pictorial way, right? But it's an indication of the kind of God we're dealing with. Or that you know God makes covenants with his people and he'll be faithful. And if the people are unfaithful, God's unhappy because it, it hurts them, but not because it hurts God. Yeah. You know, God is not diminished by the infidelity of Israel, but Israel is. And so Israel is gradually learning, oh, this is the God we're dealing with here, who is making a totally faithful covenant to us and wants us to be fully alive. He's not in com- competition with us. Now, here's why we call it the Christian distinction, because it's in Christ that it becomes most apparent. I think this this helps provide sort of a, a way through a lot of the churches wrestling with pretty big lingering questions, namely, what is Jesus? Is he God? Is he man? Is he a little bit of both? And this distinction that we're talking about in God's non-competitive existence within, within the world has a lot to do with that, right? Yeah, it, it becomes really most apparent to us in these Christological disputes. As you put it there, quite rightly, the, as the church wrestled with this idea, the Bible seems to indicate that Jesus is human, but at the same time, he's divine. So, you know, how do you work this out? And various options presented themselves. So you have, a, let's say, a Nestorian option whereby God or Jesus is kind of a super saint. He's a human being with a really intense relationship to God. Or you've got the um, Monophysite option where it's not really human at all. He's got one nature, monophysis, right? And it's a divine nature. And he's he just appears to be human or his humanity is supplanted by his divinity. He just looks human for our benefit. Yeah, and there's like a, the docetus inflection of monophysitism is what you're describing there. And then you've got a compromise position, and, and it was meant as a compromise, namely Arianism, that says, well, you know, he's kind of quasi-divine, quasi-human. It's like He's like Hercules or Achilles, and they knew about that in their mythology. So he's a, kind of a melange, he's a blend of divinity and humanity. The really interesting thing is the Council of Chalcedon, 451. When the church says no, no, and no, it says no to monophysitism. He's not just God and not human. It says no to Nestorianism, very popular today, by the way, that he's just a great guru, a great teacher, a great saint. No, no, he's not just human. And it says no to Arianism very clearly. He's not a melange or a hybrid. Why is the church always saying no, Bishop? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, but it says no in a really creative way. Because it's saying no to all three of these. The great yes, it says. Because see, the, the church's no is always a no to a no. It's a, it's, a, it's a yes, finally. The great yes is he's fully divine and fully human. Well, you say, how is that possible? Only if the God we're talking about is non-competitively transcendent to the world. So that Jesus' divine nature is not competing with his human nature. And so, like the burning bush, think now of the transfiguration. The humanity of Jesus can become radiant and beautiful the more its divinity, uh, the, the divine nature shines through. The incarnation is the full expression of this non-competitive transcendence of God. And that's why all the sacraments and every, all the church life flows from this, from this reality. But the Council of Chalcedon is the one that, that said this most clearly. 
Because Jesus' divine person, right, is capable of uniting both the divine nature, which is the fullness of being, the full infinite perfection of being, and human nature, which is always already just participating in that divine nature to some limited extent. Right. And if you had two created natures, they'd always be like this with each other. Yeah, they'd always be clashing against each other. Right. So this building could be destroyed by fire. So the fire would overwhelm it. I could become you psychologically only by dominating you and you know taking over your mind and intention. But see, yeah. God doesn't operate that way. God can be absolutely fully involved, engaged in such a way that the created nature is not overwhelmed. And there's, in my mind, I, you know, through God's grace, learned it from Sokolowski 40 some years ago, but it's the key that unlocks so much of Christian theology and spirituality and morality and everything else comes from this metaphysical uh, intuition. So let's let's try and unlock a little bit of that. Maybe let's start spiritually. Like, if we don't add anything at all to the world, why would God create us? What is, What is our relationship to God in light of that? It only makes sense if you say he creates us out of sheerest love. Because love, as Aquinas says, is willing the good of the other, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not an emotion. It's not a like a, 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 hey, I really like you. That's not love. Love is an act of the will. It's to will the good of the other. Now, see, our acts of the will are always tainted. A, because we're sinners, but B, because we're, we're finite, which means even my most generous act of the will, where I really want what's good for you, is, is probably tainted by some self-interest. You know, there's something in it for me that I'm still trying to pursue. Think of the saints now. The saints are at a much higher level where their quality of love is, is very intense. But still, none of it would reach God's level because God has no need whatsoever. God, in principle, can't desire his own good in that sense, but he can He can will utterly your good because you add nothing to his greatness. See? So that means the, the world's been loved into being. It's sustained in being through the sheerest love. God has nothing to gain from you, therefore he can let you be. He, let, he can let you flourish utterly without a sort of fussy intervention from him. Like he's going to get something out of this. There's not an ounce of manipulation, in other words, in the God. He's not using us in any way. It's a relation of utter love. One, one image that's coming to mind here is like, no matter how much good you or I do, we're always getting something back. So it doesn't matter how much weight I lift, right? I'm always being supported myself by the solid ground that I'm standing on. And Mm -hmm. that's part of what it means for me to lift weights is to be being lifted up by something else. And God doesn't need that. So in this, in this context where he's relating to me out of sheer love, I think an obstacle in the spiritual life for a lot of people is that people being kind of worried or afraid that if they let God in, he's going to start meddling around and doing things that they don't want in their lives. Say to yourself, and, say to yourself he doesn't need my moral excellence. <laughs> See, a lot of us, are, we're still haunted by that. Like, okay, I better be morally excellent because God needs that. And if, and if, he, if I'm not morally excellent, man, is he going to be hurt and disappointed? Yeah. Well, that's a projection of our, of our fallen humanity onto God. What makes God upset? And again, I'm using it in a highly analogical way because God doesn't have feelings. But what makes God upset is that I'm not flourishing. It's not like, oh boy, that, you know, Baron is doing all these wrong things and am I mad at him and I, my, my feelings are really hurt. Well, I mean, I operate that way and you do and all of us sinners do. But God is 
you know, angry to use the, the biblical image because I'm not flourishing the way he wants me to, that, that, that the love he's offering to me is not transfiguring me the, as fully as he wants it to, you know? So that's a better way to understand how we are offensive or God's offended by us, but we shouldn't psychologize them or project our own fallen humanity onto God. He wants us fully, you know, what's the glory of day homo vivens, right? Irenaeus said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. That's what God wants. So when I'm not fully alive, God's not happy with that. And he seeks to make things better. He seeks to set it right. That's God's justice on display. Our justice will always be tainted by self-interest to some degree. You know, I'm, I'm mad at you. You hurt me. And so I got to I gotta hurt you to reestablish justice. But th- that can't be the case with God. That's such an important point. I think it helps take some of the pressure off in the moral life. Because yeah. if God's not counting on me, then this is more of a gift to me. Right. And it, it oughtn't to turn into, on the other extreme, like, oh, well, who cares? You know, I just live any way I want to and God's... No, that's the other extreme. <laughs> yeah, that's not fully alive either. <laughs> right. Is it, is it God has loved me into being. He's sustaining me in being by love and he wants me fully alive. And so the right thing is to say, okay, I accept that. I want to respond to it. In fact, now let's move into, into well, it's kind of morality and spirituality. When you receive the divine grace... Tutte grace, right? As Bernardo said, I mean, everything is grace because I'm, I'm owed nothing. Everything, all my being is a result of grace. So when you receive the divine grace, what should you do? Give it away. Because now <laughs> you should become conformed to that same manner of love. Go and do likewise. Yeah. Right. It'll never be perfect because we're not God. But, but as best as we can, now contrive a way to make what you've been given a gift to others. And then this is the Bible from page one to the last page. When you do that, you'll get more grace. Grace will tend to start flowing into you and then through you into the world, which will cause more of it to flow into you. It's like, see what sin does. Sin is our own blocking up the spring, right? That we we block up the spring of grace because we say, no, I, I need to get things for myself and I need to have enough fame and wealth and power to be happy. See, all that does, it's like putting rocks in a spring. It blocks it up. But when you give that away, you give away your wealth and your pleasure and your power and your honor and all these worldly things. The one thing that happens is the grace now begins to flow through you. And the more it flows through you, the more it flows into you. Now that's the saints. The saints live in that space. What did the Lord Jesus say to the woman at the well, right? is I want to give you water bubbling up in you to eternal life. That's what he's talking about. That's what I'm trying in my stuttering way to talk about, is the water bubbling up in us to eternal life is this grace flowing through us into the world. So that's what makes you happy. And and see, that too depends upon this Christian distinction. Yeah, and it, it reminded me of the um, the exalted at the Easter Vigil when it's singing about the light of the Paschal candle, like not yeah. being undimmed for sharing of its light. Like yes. that's that's you know an example of how this is working. Yes, quite right, and that, that's why that, that image is a cool one uh, of the fire, even though it's yeah, it's a perfect uh, analogy. Yeah, it's but it's an analogy. analogy, but it's a good analogy because it it's that idea of the inexhaustibility, and by giving away, I don't lose. And, you know, Aquinas, I think of this a lot, Aquinas said that when the Lord becomes uh, really present, let's say in, in on one altar, then another altar, in one tabernacle, another tabernacle, what's going on there? He said, well, it's like a it's like a flame being lit in a new place each time. And I, it's, it's a good analogy, you know, so it doesn't diminish 
Hmm. The, the heat and light of Christ, but it's like he lights a new flame in each place. That is hitting on this idea, and that's why it's, uh, it's important. So you, you've already touched on it a lot about how this can impact human relationships in the moral life, because this is sort of changing what we, what we mean by love, just, the, just yeah. the way it like redefined what we meant by divinity in the first place. It's not a new God that Christianity is offering. It's a new way of thinking about God. In the same way, this is a new way of thinking about love, too. Yes. Oh, no, it has every implication for the moral life. It, it, what's the, the chief, it's very important, theological virtue is love. So, you know, the classical authors knew about the cardinal virtues and these virtues that we can develop through practice. And so Aristotle knew about that, you know, courage and temperance and fortitude and all that. Fine. And, and the church built upon those and felt those were important. But the theological virtues... Faith, hope, and love are really interesting because we can't acquire them through habituation. It's not like we can maybe make myself a more you know faithful person. They're, they have a gift character. And this is exactly why what we've been talking about. They are a relationship to God who is nothing but love and who gives his life away. What's the chief of the theological virtues is love because love is what God is. And in a way, I can't really love in a purely natural way, in an Aristotelian framework. I can't love, because love is this utter giving away of, of the self. And Aristotle wouldn't have seen that as, as a virtue. I mean, he had something like magnanimity and so on. But what Christians mean by love, that depends upon this unique idea, so that I can actually will the good of the other in the manner of God. So, you know, as I say, all of us sinners are tainted. So even as I, like this morning, I'm willing you're good because you asked me to be on this podcast. And I said, okay, that's a good thing. And, it's and I appreciate that, and, that very much. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm not taking any great credit, but it's a low level, simple level act of love, let's say, sure. you know, that I'm, I'm willing to be good. But I, I'm, I'm not uh, so blind as to miss that, that, sure, my will is always kind of tainted. And is there something good in this for me too? You know, will I benefit from this? Because maybe, you know, this other people will listen to this and then listen to more of my things. And Okay, <laughs> I'm sure that's in the mix somewhere because I'm a sinner and a finite uh, agent. But see, if I'm loving with the theological virtue of love, then I'm at least approaching the way God loves. You know, now we can talk about things like greater love hath no man than to give his life for his friends. Well, because if you're self-interested, that doesn't make any sense at all. Giving your life away? That's foolish. Right. And Aristotle would have thought so. So that's a weird thing. And it's what you see in the saints is they're starting to love truly in the manner of God. You know, and that's why it's rare and strange when you see that kind of love on display. And I think it gets, it gets confusing for some people when they try to talk about love in a romantic context yeah. and try and somehow translate this or, on the flip side, impose their idea of love in a romantic context to this and have this sort of determine what we are meaning in a theological context by love. Right. But marriage fits in there beautifully, doesn't it? Because that's what married love is all about. And even when these like two young kids get married and you think, okay, are they... They know what they're doing. Are they up to this? At least they're they're pledging to begin. But married love means my life is not about me anymore. It's about you. And then the the, the bride says to the groom, "My life isn't about me. It's about you." In this kind of more radical way, this yeah. mutual way. And why are you getting married in church? Because you understand 
you can't really find that kind of love apart from God. So it's not like, hey, this is a nice decorative setting for, for our vows. We, we can do it out in the forest too. No, 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 no. It's a much more radical move being made is you're pledging, you're, you're acknowledging we can't really love the way we're pledging to love apart from the grace of God. Because our, our love will devolve into self-interest. It just will. And that's why so many relationships break apart. But it's the transcendent third. That's something Sokolowski probably taught me years ago <laughs> from Aristotle, right? That two friends will deepen in their friendship in the measure that they go beyond simply a mutual affection and together fall in love with a transcendent third, right? So two friends who both love their country, two friends who both love philosophy, who both love whatever, that transcendent move will cement their relationship. Well, now, a fortiori, that's true of marriage within a Christian context. When you say, yeah, we love each other, well, big deal. I mean, that's going to that's gonna devolve into egotism if you simply leave it there. But it's together we've fallen in love with God. Now, that grace, that, that love that God is, will become a grace that informs our married relationship. So that a husband can love his wife, not because she adds anything to his goodness. Although in this case, unlike the world and God, she definitely does yeah. add something to his goodness. Yeah, but, not of for, but not for that reason and not on that condition. That's why, you know, it, it's not just a some idle romanticism, but when, the language of like for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health. What you're saying there is exactly this radical point. But I'm not marrying you because boy, it's going to be a great life for me because, you know, you're going to be healthy and happy and rich and successful. And that's going to, no, you're saying, look, even if you get really sick, even if, if every minute of every day now, I got to take care of you. Even if, if you lose all your money, even if you, you, the world hates you, I'm going to love you. So you're saying I'm pledging real love here and not indirect egotism. Unlike models of marriage that are kind of supplied by people who are maybe more skeptical of marriage as like a cultural institution, that it's historically a contract, or that it's rooted in some medieval idea of chivalry, which is very sentimental. Those are both transactional kind of relationships, right. which this transcends. Right. Sacramental marriage is dependent upon the Christian distinction. That's why th this core idea, this this infinitely uh, fecund and seminal idea of the Christian distinction, you see it now playing out in all these different forms of Christian life, including and especially marriage. Mm -hmm. What goes wrong with a marriage is precisely when the flow of grace stops, right? When you put all those rocks in the stream and, and you get obsessed with wealth and power and pleasure and you start seeing the other as someone to benefit me and whom I can start to manipulate. Or think even of parents that manipulate their children or children their parents. That can happen too. Those are all violations of love. And that's when the relationship starts going on the rocks, I guess, pun intended there. It, you've got to remove all of that and let the grace of God flow through you. It's not a problem with the circumstance. It's a, it's a lack of charity that causes a rupture in the relationship. And it causes a rupture in those lower levels of love that participate in it, yeah. like Eros or Storge or Philly or whatever. Right. To shift the metaphor again to... Um, Rota Fortune, you know, the, the, the wheel is going to turn your whole life long. Sometimes you, you know, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health. So it goes. You know, sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. That's life. But you're grounded 
in the center of the wheel, not on the rim of the wheel. So if a married couple is riding on the rim of the wheel, God help them. You know, <laughs> and then we'll, it will destroy them. Easy to fall off. Or you live in constant anxiety because even at the top of the wheel of fortune, you're, you're worried every second you're going to lose it, which you will, by the way. <laughs> it's human life. I mean, you will lose these things at some point. We all die. Right. So don't live there. Live in the center of the wheel and then watch the wheel spin around. But the married couple has to live in Christ in the center of the wheel. And that means in the place of, of this, the flow of grace. Today, I learned that that's where the phrase Wheel of Fortune comes from. I just thought it was the name of a game show. Yeah. Speaking of which, it's funny. Uh, last week, I was in Hillsdale College giving the, the commencement address, right? And who's the chair of the board? Pat Sajak, who's <laughs> the host of the Wheel of Fortune. So, um, yeah, that uh, it's an old medieval idea. Actually, it's in Boethius. It's in the Constellation of Philosophy, the idea of the road to Fortuna. He could have you come preach a retreat on that, on like the mission of the of the show. Yeah. <laughs> I have one other TV-related question for you. Very often on, on the podcast, we talk about different works of popular culture, movies and TV. And I had a friend talk to me, uh, recommend Mrs. Davis, which I saw you recently talked about as well. Do you yeah. think we should, we should watch that? Yeah. Now, you know, whenever it comes to movies and TV shows, I always have to put this... Uh, kind of warning out there is i'm not saying you know it's man for all seasons i'm not saying it's the sound of music right? so don't say oh bishop Barron said watch the, this you know weird theologically crazy show yeah so yes it is theologically crazy yes it's 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 over the top <laughs> and it's full of weird things and it, so i'm not recommending the moral behavior of everyone in the show there's a disclaimer right that's my disclaimer but trust me i'll get someone calling me or sending me an angry <laughs> What's good about that show, and it's really good, I think, it's a meditation on the way uh, AI and the internet and all that have just come to dominate us and do function the way a biblical idol functions. In other words, as a real substitute for God. And, you know, you think about it, if you were to describe this thing that's practically omniscient, uh, omnipotent, omnicompetent, all pervasive, <laughs> that influences all of us, draws us all together. If you had described that to someone a hundred years ago, they'd say, well, that's God you're talking about. But now it's the internet. And uh, Mrs. Davis refers to this AI kind of algorithm that has reached this godlike position where it, it so dominates, it so understands and manipulates everybody that it just functions as, as God. And the main character is Sister Simone, who's a nun, who's joined a community that is is purposely off the grid, that doesn't want to succumb, who is standing athwart idolatry. And one of her great lines, people keep referring to Mrs. Davis as she, and Simone always says, not she, it. Hmm. And that's a very good move spiritually. No, no, we're not talking about a person here. This is an it that we've created. And I'll go right back to the Bible, right? Uh, we make these, these things that we've made, and now we're bowing down and worshiping them. Their idols are silver and gold, the work yeah. of human hands. Their makers will come to be like they them. Their eyes yeah. but do not see, or is that, and, their, and their makers will come to be like them. So I think it's a very interesting meditation on that. Now, there's a lot of weirdness in it, everybody, and I'm not advocating <laughs> all that. There's a lot of immorality and weirdness. But at this point is, I think, a, a legitimate point. Okay, well, we, we have a hook. And Bishop Aaron had his own uh, YouTube video uh, going into more depth on the show, uh, which we'll link to in the episode notes as well. So, Bishop, is there anything else you want to leave us with? Uh, maybe not, not, not any more about Peacock's programming, but about the Christian distinction? 
Well, look, if you're interested, read Sokolowski's book called The God of Faith and Reason. It's very short. It's only, I don't know, maybe 100 pages or so. He's a very unusual philosopher. He writes in a very lucid way, very simple, but very deep at the same time, which is the best combination. He doesn't write like Heidegger and these people that are are Derrida. He writes in a very straightforward way. So get that book, get The God of Faith and Reason. And I think you'll find it sheds light in every direction. Yeah, he certainly has all the scholarly rigor in the world in his back pocket, but he really cares about being accessible to people. I would get that book of his, The God of Faith and Reason, and, and you'll see, I hope now, much better explained than I did today about what we're talking about. Well, well, we'll link to that as well. Thanks for recommending that. Well, Bishop Barron, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Enjoy the conversation a lot. Please share this podcast with your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now. And God love you.